Hello and welcome to another edition of the Bunker Daily. I am your host, Alex Andreu. Palestinian-American academic Edward Said, really the person who invented the subject of post-colonial studies, once wrote, and I paraphrase, that the Orient and Islam have a kind of extra-real, phenomenological reduced status that puts them out of reach of everyone except the Western expert, that essentially for the longest time whole regions have not had the ability to represent themselves in the debate about what happens to them. That evidence becomes credible only after it has passed through and been validated by a Westerner. My guest today is Kim Khattas, part Dutch, part Lebanese, born in Beirut, but reporting for the BBC and Financial Times from there through two decades of conflict, then moved to Washington and covered the State Department. Devoutly cosmopolitan, firmly rooted in multiple worlds, she's part of a generation who are changing that voicelessness described by Said and being really the first people that can speak authoritatively on the region from the region in an unfiltered way. And also importantly, in a way that is not seen to represent the whole region, but just the personal opinion, part of a school of thought within it. Her first book, The Secretary, charted Hillary Clinton's journey from the State Department to her nomination and became a New York Times bestseller. Her second book, Black Wave, Saudi Arabia, Iran, and the Rivalry that Unraveled the Middle East, is out on paperback now and is, I would hazard a guess, looking at the reviews, similarly destined for the bestseller list. Now, history books can be dry. This is not. It is accessible and vivid, intensely lyrical in places personal, written, it seems to me, explicitly to explain the region in a human way to people not from the region, and it plugs exactly the right gaps. Kim Khattas, welcome to The Bunker. Thank you so much for having me, Alex, and thank you so much for this incredibly thoughtful introduction. No, it's my pleasure. It really was a, a, a joy to read. Now, growing up in Beirut during the Civil War, what, what was that like? I often think that kids in Syria of 10 years old have known nothing else but the Syrian conflict. Does it basically become totally normal to a kid that's born in it? In many ways, it does. It was my, my normal for the first 13 years of my life. But I must say that what Syrian children are going through is so much worse because of the kind of country that Syria is, much more close to the world even before this war, ruled by a dictator. The openings to the outside, the ability to travel, to escape are much less, unless you become a refugee and take that treacherous escape route through the Mediterranean to Europe. And that also what the Syrians have that we didn't have as much are the horrific air raids, both by the regime and by the Russians. We had some air raids by the Israelis, but this rain of metal um, from the skies is what makes the Syrian conflict so much worse than anything that I had to go through. But it was pretty horrific. We lived through 13 years of this. I lived through 13 years of this. It was my normal. We lived on the front lines, literally. And we lived in what ended up being a no man's land. And the question I often get is, why didn't your parents leave the country? Why didn't your parents leave the neighborhood? 
it's because it's hard to leave home. Uh, you know, becoming a refugee is not something, it's not a decision that people take lightly. It's when all other options have, have run out. We didn't know how long it was going to last. The normal becomes normal very slowly. You don't realize that it's happening to you. You adapt, you, you make do, you find ways around it. And so before we knew it, 13 years, 15 years for my parents had passed. But there were moments where things were somewhat normal. I went to school. Uh, we went for Sunday lunches to restaurants. We visited friends. And we had the, the incredible good fortune of being able to travel still. We would go to my mom's home country, the Netherlands, and spend a few months there. And I remember the tears every time we had to come back. Do you remember the first moment when um, you consciously thought, so not everywhere is uh, in conflict? I don't remember the moment where, where, where I thought not everywhere is in conflict. I think that was also part of my normal, knowing that there was this country called the Netherlands that we could go to and I could play in the grass and be outside and not worry about being shot at because our road to school every day was quite treacherous. Some of it was on foot for a few years from one checkpoint to another. And my father had to drop us off at one checkpoint and we'd, we'd had to walk quite a long way and then be picked up by the school bus on the other end of the city because we lived in one part of the city and went to school in another part. So I, I knew, because it was part of my life, that there was this other place, this other world, where things were, quote-unquote, normal. But it was only much later, somehow, in the 90s, when I was um, already at university or in, in, in my last year in high school, when I visited my sister, who was studying in the U.S., that I visited a campus Mm. And I saw students lying on the grass and reading. And, and it's in that moment, really, that for the first time, I had this realization of the insouciance that comes from growing up in the West. Mm. This sort of, ah, that's <laughs> what it's like. That is what it li it's like to wake up in the morning and not have to worry about whether you're going to live or die today. I remember that moment very vividly. Now, you covered the Middle Eastern conflict during much of the two Iraq uh, wars, both for the BBC and uh, the Financial Times and uh, Dutch newspapers. Um, how was that as a, a, a very young female journalist? So I covered, I started covering Iraq in uh, 99. Uh, when it was still under Saddam Hussein. And I traveled there with a colleague from National Public Radio. And then um, I kept traveling to Iraq. And then I covered the 2003 uh, US invasion of, of Iraq. And then I spent a bit more time covering the aftermath, but not for very long, because uh, I made a conscious decision that I did not want to become a war reporter. Partly because my parents couldn't handle it. They kept saying, look, we understand that you want to be a journalist. They weren't too happy about it, but can you please not cover conflicts? We did a good job keeping you alive through 15 years of civil war. You know, we don't understand why you want to do this again. And I just couldn't handle my mom crying on the phone um, in March of 2003 when I was in Baghdad at the hotel there waiting for the impending US invasion. I couldn't handle her cries on the phone. So I left and uh, I covered the invasion from Syria. I never felt personally that there was anything different about me as a woman covering 
the conflict or the countries mm. from my male colleagues. It never was something in my consciousness because the way our father raised us, me and my two sisters, was that everything was possible. And it, it was never an issue that we were women or there were things we couldn't do because we were girls. That was, you know, and it's not particular to my family. I know a lot of my friends in the region and especially in Lebanon have grown up with fathers who never made it an issue for them. So I, I, I never thought of, oh my God, I'm a woman, can I do that? You know, one of the first things I, I did as, a, as an intrepid reporter was travel on my own by shared taxi from Beirut to Damascus, Damascus to Jordan to cover stories, and then from Jordan to Iraq uh, in, a, in a car with the driver through 12 hours of desert. It, it didn't occur to me that it would be more dangerous for me than for any other person, because there were bandits and various other things that could happen to you. Perhaps I was totally reckless and... and, and <laughs> as, as are we all at that age. I'm not sure I would do it again. But I really want to emphasize that it might have been a very personal experience, because I know how much women colleagues have suffered with issues of you know, reporting as women in the Arab world, but also elsewhere. It's not particular only to the Arab world. And, you know, harassment is not particular to the Arab world. It's a worldwide phenomenon. Now, how pleased was your mum when in 2008 <laughs> you, moved, you moved to the United States to cover the State Department, essentially? They were very proud, obviously. Uh, they were concerned about the rate of gun crimes in the U.S. <laughs> <laughs> you know, everything is relative, Alec. Everything is relative. I told my sister, my my older sister, please don't mention these numbers to her about gun crimes in the U.S. I remember the first year I was in the U.S., I was I wanted to go on holiday and I wanted to go to Mexico, to Tulum, to, on, a, on a beach vacation. And my mom kept calling to say, why do you want to go to Mexico? Do you know they have drug cartels there? Why don't you come to Lebanon? We have the beach here. It's <laughs> brilliant. And I just thought, it really is all relative. What yeah, are you comfortable with? And then, conversely, the first time I went to Pakistan, I was concerned. I'm like, I don't know, Pakistan. I mean, what is it going to be like? I've never been there. Prejudice can, can affect anyone, even someone whose job it is mm. to cover different countries and different cultures and who comes from, I don't want to say a different culture, but a different culture from the one that my readers in the FT or some of my viewers at the BBC would be from. The other is always different and there's always some, some apprehension. That's what I love about my job is to try to get beyond these prejudices and these apprehensions that I may have and that my readers have or my viewers have and to really show that at the end of the day, we're all pretty similar. And I think that if there's one thing we have learned from the COVID pandemic is that our failings across the world are pretty much the same. Now, um, your book, Black Wave, I know that there are many, many books that cover you know, specific aspects of the Middle East or who focus on specific countries in the Middle East and, and, and tell a story. But I haven't come across something that is as sweeping as your narrative. It sort of looks across 
a number of nations and across a number of decades and and tells a story it's it's like uh, gone with the wind but for the for the middle east and i i enjoyed that aspect of it a lot was it a a nightmare to put together how did you decide what fits where I had this big matrix, a cork board with lots of note cards and post-its on my wall. One axis was the decades and one axis was the countries that I thought would fit in there. I had events for every decade and each country. And then I looked across the countries and saw which bits connected and which bits did not connect. But this was really only after about a year and a half of thinking that I could do this, 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 this axis. So long prep, basically. Your publisher must have been going spare. <laughs> it's been two years and I haven't seen a single page. What's going on? <laughs> there was a proposal first for the publisher or for my age, with my agent and which we submitted to publishers. And the proposal took a year to write because my thesis was really complex. But at the same time, because it was about the Middle East, that region over there with all these people who seemingly keep killing each other, I had to really make a case that this was different, that what I was trying to tell was a story that had not been told and that in fact goes against a lot of the misconceptions about the region. Mm. So it was both very simple and very, um, and very complex. So I spent a year working on the proposal testing and stress testing the thesis, because I also couldn't quite believe that no one had written this book before, uh, but no one had. There were a lot of books about Egypt or Saudi or Iran or the Iranian revolution. Um, some were about the Saudi-Iran rivalry, but they were only about the geopolitics. Some were about the rise of, Isl of Islamism, political Islamism, cultural changes. But there, were, there were none that brought it all together. And I thought there were none that really did this from a human perspective. You know, the real sort of the people at the heart of the story. And um, I think that there were really none that I saw that were written by somebody from the region. Not only for a Western audience, because I, I noticed what you said in your introduction. It is for a Western audience, but it is also for us in the region to understand what happened to us, what we did, what we went, where we went wrong, and how we can undo some of it. So going right at the starting point of the book, how liberal was the Middle East before the Iranian revolution? I mean, we all, we've all seen the photos of Iranian women with beehives and miniskirts going to university, but is that just another Western trope, or, or was that actually representative of the time? No, that was representative of an elite. But the bigger idea behind these pictures in black and white of women in miniskirts is that you had the freedom to choose. And that's what we lost over time. And the freedom to choose was definitely there across the region. And I would say it wasn't necessarily liberal. There were liberal circles. But it was a region that was diverse and tolerant, where pluralism was a value that was at the heart of a lot of people's lives. And uh, they had progressive values and a progressive outlook on life. And it was very diverse also in its politics from the far left to the far right. So that's what I show in the book, the slow undoing of that. So that's the first 
you know, misconception that I go against in the book. Oh, this region's always been intolerant and extremist and it'll always be like that. No, it wasn't. I'm not saying that everybody was wearing a miniskirt, but that's not the point. The point is that people had a choice, including women, and they felt that things were progressing and becoming better. And uh, what I also want to uh, make make clear is that the, the characters in the book, and there's about 15 of them who are central and they're half women, half men, are not the elite. They are really your everyday person, not in their profession, but in where they come from. Some of them are writers, they're teachers, they're clerics, and they're not the westernized elite who has who have all studied abroad. Some have, but not all of them. Some of them have never lived abroad. Some of them don't speak English. And they are really the progressive, tolerant, pluralistic core of this region. And they are also devout, some of them. They're, they practice their religion. And it's to show that there's nothing wrong with being a practicing Muslim, just like there's nothing wrong with being a practicing Jew or a practicing Christian. But what we only hear about these days are the people on the extreme in the headlines who take religion and, and abuse it and use it for, for violence. And then the other thing that I undo in the book is the idea that Iran and Saudi Arabia have always been rivals and always been at each other's uh, throats, and they have not. What started it was the year 1979, which is at the core. Yes, and, and you look at, you focus, you zero in on three things broadly, the the Iranian revolution, the Russians going into Afghanistan, both of which I knew a little bit about. What I knew really very little about was the seizure of the Grand Mosque in Mecca by, by insurgents and the effect that had on King Khalid and how you know that was in many ways as big a factor in creating this this rivalry, this battle for ownership of of the real Islam, in quotes. Absolutely. It's an episode of the region's history that is not that well known and which I knew nothing about until I was doing research for my first book. That book is about American foreign policy around the world, including in the region. So I came across that episode and I started reading The Siege of Mecca, by Yaroslav Trofimov, who's a great colleague and, and, and journalist for the Wall Street Journal. And what happens in that episode, in that, in that seizure of, of Mecca, is that after, you know, earlier in the year, 1979, the Shah is, is, is ousted. And the, this Iranian revolution, which is dominantly leftist still at the time, but turns Islamic because Ayatollah Khomeini uh, hijacks it, basically, and turns Iran into an Islamic Republic and gets, gets rid of all the leftists and the moderates who helped him uh, come to, to power in essence, uh, naively perhaps, but there was, I think, not much they could have done. The Saudis suddenly see that they have their own zealots in the country. I, Saudi Arabia is very different from Iran. It's not as progressive, not as advanced culturally, etc. at the time, certainly. And it's already very conservative, ruled by what people commonly describe as Wahhabism, ultra-literalist, orthodox, puritanical Islam. And suddenly they realize, the Saudis, the House of Saud realizes that they have real zealots who want them to become even more 
conservative. And they've seen mm. what happened to the Shah when he pushed back against the clerics. So what they do is instead of pushing back against their own clerics, they get rid of the zealots who take over Mecca, but they give in to the clerical establishment and they give them free reign, not only within the country. So Saudi Arabia becomes even more conservative, but they start exporting this zealotry and they start proselytizing outside of their own borders because Khomeini is now also exporting his own revolution and claiming that he is the real leader of the Muslim world. And that's where you have the rivalry between Saudi Arabia and Iran starting. And because one country is Sunni and the other is dominantly Shia, perfectly happy to be friends before, the Shah and the king of Saudi Arabia were per- perfectly happy to be friends before, the Saudis and the Iranians now start competing as Sunnis and Shias. And they unleash the sectarian aspect of this rivalry, which leads to sectarian tension and eventually, of course, sectarian violence. And so just to f- end here, this is the third misconception that I try to go against in the book, which is to say that Shias and Sunnis have not always been killing each other the way we've seen them over the last couple of decades. Yes, it's a historical, theological schism, but it's not something that has dominated our lives the way it has over the last couple of decades. This was an element that really struck me throughout the book, the sort of strange bedfellows it's created over time. You have, you know, communists supporting Khomeini and, um, you know, Hamas is Sunni, but Hezbollah is Shia, and all, all the way to the bizarre interaction between China and Turkey and the Kurds over Syria and how that changes on an almost monthly basis. You have this incredibly fluid situation where everyone, including the West, seems to be trying to calculate whether my friend's enemy of my friend's friend's enemy's enemy is my friend. Religion is just the front. And so Hamas and Hezbollah, Hezbollah being Shia, Hamas being the Palestinian Sunni uh, group, can look like strange bedfellows if you're convinced that, not you, but sort of generally, if people are convinced that, you know, Sunnis and Shias can never cooperate on anything because that's what we've been led to believe by relentless sort of, you know, media coverage or policy making, etc. But actually they have a lot in common, anti-American, anti-Israeli, because it's about power. And that's where the two camps are formed around these 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 central tenets of of anti-imperialism, anti anti-Westernism, anti-Israel. So you have Iran and all its friends, Hamas, Hezbollah, Bashar al-Assad and his father before him, Hafez al-Assad, who was in the in the anti-American camp and anti-Israeli camp. And then you have you know everyone else, and then. You know, Russia is uh, is a very interesting player in, in, in the region. You know, people look to Russia as a power that can help them stand up to the West. And of course, they forget that Russia has its own imperial ambitions or hegemonic uh, ambitions. And you just need to look at what they've been doing in, in Syria. Now, on the actual black wave, which is a term an Egyptian director used to describe this insurgence, this darkness sweeping over the... Um, Gulf. And you talk about how the rest of the region's regimes were watching very nervously what had started uh, unfolding and were sort of taking notes. And what was striking to me is that not a single one went, 
yes, we should move towards something slightly more liberal. So let's start making preemptive reforms to avoid similar revolts. All of them were looking out for the early signs determined to really stamp on it. Was was the notion that Arab Spring could reverse four decades of polarization always naive, or was it a necessary start? I mean, must blood be spilled for real change to occur? It was both, I would say. It was naive and a necessary start. I, I just want to backtrack a little bit on the, the Black Wave words, the, the title of the book. It was first used by the Egyptian filmmaker Yusuf Shaheen in the 90s because he was horrified by the arrival and the spread of the black niqab, the face veil in Egypt, which was something that no one had really seen before and which was really a result of, you know, Saudi proselytizing and throwing around their money and their checkbook diplomacy spreading religion. Uh, at the same time, you had the Iranian-style Shia Chador that was spreading. So there was this black wave engulfing women and of course, the rise of militant groups and their black flags from, you know, Hezbollah to later ISIS. And then just generally, it's a metaphor for, you know, the, the darkness that engulfed us during during this time, which many people thought they could undo or was going to be undone with the Arab uprisings. I think we're still in the middle of this process. I think it was a necessary start. And I think that what we did not appreciate at the time is how much the rivalry between Iran and Saudi Arabia played a role in blocking this progress. I talk about that in the book. The Saudis were terrified that this was going to be another opportunity for the Iranians to spread their gospel, so to speak, because Ayatollah uh, Ali Khamenei did say quite soon after the downfall of Mubarak He was hedging his bet until that moment. He said, well, this is another Islamic awakening and the Egyptians are going to continue where we started in 1979. So Saudis, even though they certainly don't have any democratic instincts within them, um, they felt that they could really not allow any of this to progress. And both Iran and Saudi Arabia played a huge role in thwarting the democratic progressive aspirations of people in this region. You tell a brilliant uh, anecdote about the second richest people in Egypt Mm. being belly dancers because the Saudis put money in their belt and and the richest people being former belly dancers who have taken the veil because the Saudis put money directly in their bank account. And I think the thing that really jumped out of your book for me was that the attempt to to shoehorn people and events into binary realities, you know, to say that Mohammed bin Salman is either a reformer or a, a horrible dictator, when actually he's both. It seems to me that the really damaging thing, I mean, we did the same thing with Bashar al-Assad. I don't have a lot of great things to say about Bashar al-Assad. I don't think he has any sort of redeeming factors. I must be very honest there. I'm not assessing his qualities. I'm just saying Mm -hmm. that he was widely touted originally as a reformer until he became the worst uh, person in the world. And yeah. and it seems to me that it's really damaging this vacillation between now we like you, now we don't, mm. that, that's causing a hell of a lot of 
damage in the region. And maybe we just have to accept that progress is slow, it is flawed, and it is always better to draw people closer and nudge them in the right direction than to completely cut them off. You know, it's a very interesting question, Alex, because it's a question that is being asked today in the U.S. Yes. The scene that we saw on Capitol Hill, you have those who are calling for unity and you have those who are saying, what kind of unity are you talking about with people who try to overthrow in the U.S. government, with people who called for the hanging of Mike Pence and Nancy Pelosi, with the people who are responsible for the death of fellow citizens and a police officer on Capitol Hill, no unity is possible. And I think that what this says to us is that there are moments where you need to push back against the idea that you can bring some people closer. And that's where I fault American policymaking hugely. When they look at people like Bashar al-Assad and they don't think that the apple never falls far from the tree. He was his father's son. And yet he wore a suit and he spoke English and he didn't have a beard and he had a pretty wife. But he was a dictator. And this idea that you can make him one of your own or that you can make a deal with someone like that. I mean, sometimes it works, but you cannot forget where they come from. And the other mistake that American policymakers make all the time, and I hope that it's a lesson that they've learned, is to think that stability at all costs, whether it comes from dictators who oppose you, like Bashar al-Assad, or dictators that you support, like Hosni Mubarak, that that is a good thing, stability. It turned out to be very costly especially for people in this region. And I think that is the one thing that American foreign policymakers need to apply themselves to deconstruct. How do you attain real stability that is beneficial, not just for America, but for the people of this region? Because only then does it become sustainable and real. Now, you're back in the region. You're back in Beirut. How are things there? We hear almost nothing about COVID-19 in the region. It's, it's like the only thing we're interested about in the Middle East is conflict in the Middle East, and no other news filters out. Well, I think because, you know, to be fair, people are consumed by the pandemic wherever they are. So people in the UK are consumed by their own lockdown and their efforts to deal with, you know, online schooling and work and working from home and curfews and, and measures to um, get ready for confinement. So I don't fault people for not being um, aware of what's happening in the Middle East when it comes to COVID. I would divide the region into three categories the absolutely devastating effect on countries like Yemen uh, that are already in conflict and uh, no ability to fend for themselves, no access to testing, no access to vaccines, etc. Countries that are um, doing uh, okay, reasonably well, like Saudi Arabia, the UAE, um, because they have the money to test a lot, they have the authority to enforce measures, And now they're bringing in the vaccines. Uh, Actually, I'll make that four categories. The third category is countries like Lebanon, who are muddling through 
who are dealing with a lot of problems, but somehow managing, but the curve is, you know, exponentially rising now. Um, and in that category, I would put countries in uh, North Africa, you know, maybe Jordan to some extent as well. And then you have countries where we just don't know really what the reality is. And in that category, I would put uh, Egypt, where it's impossible to know whether the numbers are real or not, because the state has a tight hold on on facts and truth. Yeah. And also countries like Iran, where we just are not, you know, not always sure what, what is going on. Yeah. Kim... Thank you so much for your time and for this book. Thank you so much for, for having me on The Bunker. Thank you so much. I feel genuinely a little bit smarter, you know, and I love books that do that. If I have one criticism is that you should have called it everything you wanted to know about the Middle East, but we're afraid. <laughs> we didn't think it would be a very catchy title. <laughs> so, like a scholarly book, but, but I... But, and I like that you describe it like that. And, and I, de- I describe it like the 1001 Nights of Modern Geopolitics of the Middle East. Oh, very good. That's very good. Black yeah. Wave, uh, <laughs> Saudi Arabia, Iran, and the rivalry that unraveled the Middle East is out on paperback now, and I cannot recommend it enough. And listeners, remember there's a new bunker daily on Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday mornings. You'll start the week supplement on Mondays and a longer weekly episode featuring the full panel every Tuesday. So don't forget to subscribe, reviewers, and raters. And please consider supporting us on the funding platform Patreon, where you can search for the bunker podcast. For just a little while longer, please keep socially distant, but emotionally available always. We shall hug each other very soon. This is Alexandre in the bunker saying over and out. The Bunker Daily was presented by Alexandre. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Arshbold and Yelena Sofronievich. An audio production was by me. Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production. Mm-hmm.